What makes a testimony believable? What makes a story true? You need to look at two components. The source and the evidence. Who told the story and can it be proven? I heard a story this week of a dad who walked to the bus stop to wait for his son who was coming home from school and he brought the family dog or the family dog kind of trailed along with him as they walked to the bus stop. And while they were waiting for the bus, the dog got hit by a car. And so the man carried his family dog back to his property and buried uh, the, the dog that evening. And they were rushed because they were going on a family vacation as soon as uh, they got the, the kid home from school. They didn't want to cancel their trip, so they buried the dog quickly. They left for the weekend, and when they got back just two days later, the family dog was waiting for them on the front porch. <laughs> Evidently, he was knocked unconscious but was still alive and dug out of his shallow grave in the backyard and waited for them to come home. It was a miracle. That's a good story, right? What well, makes it a true story? I want to hear it from the dad, and I want to see uh, uh, Airbud, whatever his name was, right? I want to see Fluffy. Uh, I read that story on the internet. I have no idea if it's true. I've heard that the internet is not a reliable source of truth. Um, if you go to college and you have to write papers, one of the things that teachers really care about, for some reason, are credible sources. You're not going to believe this, but Wikipedia is not a credible source. You can't put that on your footnote and you know still get a pass on your paper. Um, so in chapter 26, the book of Acts... Paul stands before the great King Agrippa. He's ready to make his defense again. And the governor Festus has sort of set this whole thing up for Agrippa to hear his defense. He's got this keen interest in Paul. Uh, Agrippa was a Jew himself. He was acquainted with the law and the prophets and Jewish traditions. And he wants to hear Paul's story because he's wondering if this is believable. Agrippa gave Paul permission to begin his defense, and Paul makes his flattering greeting in the first few verses, along with his plea for the king to listen patiently to him. And then verse 4, we read, My manner of life from my youth, Paul says, spent from the beginning among my own nation and from um, and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And I now stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He begins his testimony, his story, as he's done in all the other accounts. He brings them back to where it all started. Um, and no one was believing him after he had told this story many, many times. And he'd been shuffled around, been in prison for many years now. Uh, and at the end of this passage, Festus is going to call him a maniac. You're out of your mind. But he starts the same place every time. His hope is in the resurrection of the dead. If you read the prophets, this is what all the 12 tribes are waiting on. This is what all the hope of the Jews is built on. And I believe it. And the Jews are accusing me for not believing what they believe. 
And then verse 8 is so powerful. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? What is the source of truth? The Lord himself. He has revealed himself to Paul. He has sent his son Jesus, the word made flesh. The testimony comes from God himself. The source is a good source. The proof is in the pudding. Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. This is the hope that all the Jews were building on, that there was a Messiah who would come and make all things right. We use the word incredible a lot to describe this sense of like wonder and awe in hyperbole uh, that, you know, it's almost too good to be true, right? But incredible means it ain't true. It's incredible. It's not reliable, right? He says, why do you think it's unreliable or untrue, incredible, that God raises the dead? We believe the gospel is not incredible. The gospel is credible. The power of God unto salvation is not incredible. God raising the dead is not incredible. In all these things, because God himself is the source and we have trustworthy proof from eyewitnesses who pen down these things, these are absolutely credible claims. So the point of Paul's defense today is to prove the credibility of the resurrection through telling his own story again. And how would you show someone the evidence of the power of God? Paul points to three things in his defense. <clears throat> Many things. <coughs> but three things we're going to focus on. Uh, and they are God's power to save and sanctify sinners. God's power to help the weak. And God's power to persuade all men. <clears throat> do you believe in the power of God? I think many of us say that we do, but then we sort of tell a different story with our lives. We say Jesus is alive, the power of God is credible, but our lives may sometimes testify that it is incredible. If Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, and the credible power and authority of God has been made known, is there anything too hard for the Lord? What could we possibly believe is incredible for the Lord to do if he's already raised his son from the dead and defeated death and hell and sin? There's nothing too hard for the Lord. He can do all that he wants, anything that he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He's God. He's seated on high. And the evidence of his power surrounds us, clothing the earth in his splendor and majesty and glory. It should not be thought incredible by any of us that God raises the dead. We believe that the resurrection is credible, first, because God saves and sanctifies sinners. God saves and sanctifies sinners. Look at verse 9 and follow me again. Uh, a long section. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus to Nat of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Um, skip down to the Damascus Road, verse 14. When uh, they'd all fallen to the ground because of the light that shone around them, he heard a voice in the Hebrew language saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. <clears throat> so we've heard this a dozen times now, right? Uh, we know who Paul used to be. Pharisee of Pharisees, chief of sinners, persecutor of the church. Uh, he punished them in raging fury all the way to Damascus, which is why he was on the road to Damascus. Uh, and then he sees a light that is like brighter than the entire sun in full force. And everybody, all his companions, bow down uh, to their faces, but only Paul uh, sees the Lord Jesus for his own eyes. And he sees this light, and of course Jesus says those words, why are you persecuting me? And the end of verse 14 records Jesus saying, this is new, he hasn't recorded this in his previous testimonies, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. A goad is like a sharp stick or a rod. It would be used to guide and direct cattle into submission. And so you can imagine, you know, um, uh, uh, whatever, a, a cattle, a beast, uh, kicking against this um, rod, trying to get them in submission. And Jesus is saying, your uh, rebellion or your rejection or your uh, kicking against me is futile. I'm going to keep poking until you submit. Uh, and so this is this little proverbial way of saying it's futile to try and refuse the will of the Lord. The Lord chooses sinners, and when he does, he will have them no matter what. Not even their own kicking and screaming will keep them from being converted. The last thing Paul ever thought would happen to him is that he would become a Christian. That is the farthest thing from his previous reality. But with the blinding light and the final thrust of the goad, Christ had made his irrevocable mark on Paul and was making him not only a believer, but an apostle. Verse 15. <clears throat> I said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness of the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Here's why. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Jesus' express purpose in choosing Paul. This is why I chose you. This is why I appointed you, to make you a servant and a witness to the things that you've seen in me and the things that I'm going to reveal later on. Paul is telling his story as an eyewitness of Jesus. This is the evidence. And as an eyewitness, Jesus would send him first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles, to open their eyes like Paul had his eyes opened, first blinded, but the scales fell off, right? that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. So Paul's telling his story here, but I can't help but zoom in right here on this passage, this, these few verses, because we're just listening in and we get like all this epic theology just like pouring out. And we've got to pay attention to what he's saying here. Let's follow what he's, what he's happened. Paul hates Christians. Paul meets Jesus and is unable to resist his lordship. Paul, chief of sinners, becomes a believer and an eyewitness to the glory of Christ. Paul narrowly escaped Jewish territory 
to go and preach salvation to Gentiles through preaching the message of Jesus' lordship through his death and resurrection, the eyes of even Gentiles would be opened to the same light that saved Paul. The gospel would turn them from the power of Satan to the power of God. The gospel would give them forgiveness of sins. The gospel would give them a place among all those who are sanctified. Moral of the story, if this is happening, the resurrection is credible. If this is actually happening among the surrounding nations and Gentiles are turning on their, on their faces and, and repenting from, from Satan to God, Jesus must be alive. One of the greatest evidences of Jesus' resurrection is the salvation of people like you and me. How have your eyes been opened? How did you turn from darkness to light? How did you escape Satan and find a refuge in the power of God? How have your sins been forgiven? How are we considered to be sanctified and holy in the sight of God? The last four words of verse 18 cry out to us with the answer. By faith in me! By faith in me! If Jesus isn't alive, what is our faith in? How is this happening? He is giving faith to sinners. He's radically changing them from the inside out, making them alive in his name by faith in Jesus. This is happening. And I think what we need to do this morning is just drink from the fountain of grace and remember what the Lord has done with us. Do you know what a gift faith is? It's a gift. Romans 1 says the righteous shall live by faith, meaning we are rescued, made alive by the gift of faith imparted to us. We were once sinners. Now we've been given the gift of faith and we've been made alive by his own righteousness imparted to us on our account by faith. Ephesians 2 says that this faith is a gift from God so that no one may boast. It's not about our works. It's not our own doing. At the very moment that faith was imparted to our sinful hearts, every single sin we ever committed or ever could commit flew from our sin-sick souls and landed on the cross of Christ and were remembered no more. Our sins were forgiven by grace through faith in Christ alone. And we did nothing to earn it. It's all Jesus. I heard it described this week like a child being born. You would never congratulate a child that just came out of the womb on a job well done, right? Good job, kid. You did it. You know? The child did nothing. The child just existed. The, the mother carried the child. The mother gave life to the child. The mother sustained the child. The mother delivered the child. It's not us. Even if it was 1% of our salvation belonging to us, it wouldn't be salvation. All of it is what Christ has done. And we did nothing to earn it. If you think your sin wasn't all that bad, you should at least recognize where the Bible says your soul was situated. The Bible says that you were a son of the devil. John chapter 8, Jesus says the same thing to the Pharisees. You're of your father, Satan. The father of lies. You were not only dead, but you were rebellious and wicked and a liar, just like the father of lies. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were sons of Satan, even when we were sons of the devil, made us all alive together with Christ. 
He delivered us from the domain of darkness. He ushered us into the kingdom of light. He showed to us a greater power, a light greater than the sun in its full force, and the darkness ran for the hills. The darkness fled from us, and Satan stood no chance in the light of the power of the gospel. Grace came. No longer were we heirs with the devil, but we became heirs with Christ, fully justified through the atonement and forgiveness of our sins. He says that we've been justified. To be justified means that you cannot be any more saved and accepted by God than you were the second you first believed. God cannot love you more if you do good things or love you less if you do bad things. If you're justified, you are under one heading, and that is God saying, mine. He's mine. Jesus' righteousness has been imparted to you. He sees you as though you've never sinned a single day in your life. You are justified in his sight. That's called grace. That's called freedom. That's called love. This is the power of God to justify sinners. This is the credibility of the resurrection of the dead. He has loved us unconditionally, justifying us and forgiving our sins as a free gift through faith. And you know what he does? He sanctifies us. He loves us so dearly that he gives us his spirit to continue a work of spiritual growth in the faith and knowledge of Christ. A lifelong journey toward maturity in him. But apparently, according to this passage, we are already as good as sanctified. Our seat is sealed in the heavenly places where Christ is. And even though we're on the journey toward maturity in Christ now, this passage says you have a place with those who are past tense sanctified. They've already reached it. They've reached the shore. They've reached glorification. He says you're already there. That's how justified you are. I consider you as good as sanctified. God's work is credible. Kicking against his power is futile. His grace is amazing. And we're not even halfway through the chapter. His power is shown to be credible through saving and sanctifying sinners, as he did for Paul, as he was doing for some Jews, as he was doing for Gentiles. And also now through helping the weak. Through helping the weak. Verse 19. So Paul says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this is the reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. But Paul says to the king, I had to obey. What would you do? Right? Jesus showed up and d delivered me from the domain of darkness and appointed me to his service. And so then he does the Great Commission, Acts 1-8. He goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles, and tells them about the free gift of grace through uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And specifically, Paul tells them that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. And we just got all this awesome grace stuff, like a few verses ago. And then he says, y'all need to repent and do good things. And so we say, wait a minute. <laughs> what happened to that grace stuff? I like that other part, right? 
um, what happened to justification? Being sanctified. <clears throat> repentance and good works, repentance and good works are not incompatible with sovereign, unconditional grace. These are not competing ideas. That's the first thing we need to go ahead and get off the table. These are not in competition with each other. God is in charge of both. God supplies the means for both to happen. Paul just said that Jesus is the one who opens eyes and turns our hearts from the devil to Christ. I'm pretty sure that's a definition for repentance. Turning from one thing to another. Paul just said Jesus does that. And then he tells everybody to repent. Repentance is just as much a gift from Christ as faith is. It is the turning from one thing to another. Jesus makes that happen in us. And what about good works? I heard of a good works Baptist church one time, and you know, it just made me cringe a little bit. You know? Not that we don't we're anti good works, right? Amen. We we trust and obey. We 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 do good things. We're Christians, right? Um but if we're gonna slap something on our name, <laughs> I want it to be Jesus. I want it to be grace. Uh good works have nothing to do with our salvation. We believe in the perseverance of the saints. That means that good works are evidence of the faith that God has already worked in us. Good works are the fruit that Jesus grows from that first seed of salvation. He's in charge of the saving. He's in charge of the fruit bearing. Ephesians 2.10 says that we were created for good works. That God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before we were even saved, the Lord had chosen, prepared good works for us to walk in. And now, by the Holy Spirit, we walk in them. Even good works are pointing back to grace that God freely poured out on us, making us His own. And I just want you to feel bathed in grace this morning. If any of you are wondering if God still loves you, because you haven't had enough quiet times, because you were really bitter with your spouse recently and said some things you regret. Because you fell into that sin again. Maybe you live paralyzed in fear that you will displease God or you will displease your family. Maybe you've grown up in church, you've been taught how to be good, but you can't wrap your mind around grace and unconditional love. Here is water for your soul. You cannot be any more justified in the sight of God than you already are in Christ. You could never do enough good works to make the Lord love you more or enough bad things to make Him love you less. He has already given everything for you. He has given you His Son. He has given you the gift of repentance. He has prepared good works for you to walk in. He gave you faith by His name. He has seated you in the heavenly places as good as sanctified. That is an irrevocable gift, and it cannot be reversed. As hard as you try. What's the quote? If you could lose your salvation, you would. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book called The Great Divorce, expresses a vivid and elaborate vision of visiting heaven as a sinner. Anybody read The Great Divorce? Not yet. You'll be, you'll be wanting to read it after this. Um, he, and, and there's two parts that I remember of this guy's like visit to the heaven, heavenly realm. 
And the first part is that he's like translucent. He's like a, he's like a hologram. Everything else there is real. It's like earthy, hard, physical, and he's the one who's like, you know, uh, not all there. He's, he's uh, transparent. And then um, the grass in heaven is hard. He can't walk on it. His feet aren't hard. His feet are like translucent. And the grass is like diamonds. And it, it hurts. It's painful. He can't walk there. And one of the spirits says to him in a comment there in that scene, he says, you can never do it like that, he said. Your feet will never grow hard enough to walk on our grass that way. You'd be tired out before we even got to the mountains. We are called to walk in newness of life. This was the message to the Gentiles and to the Jews. It didn't matter who they were or whether they kept the law their entire lives, whether they were pagans worshiping Artemis, they were steeped in sexual immorality. God gloriously saved sinners by grace uh, through faith in Christ and now gives them good works of freedom to walk in. Keeping in step with repentance and performing deeds according to our salvation is like truly walking for the first time. Before we were incapable of doing anything good or giving God glory as he deserves, we were slaves to unrighteousness. We were unable to walk. But God has given us the gift of faith and repentance through Christ that we might walk as we've never walked before. It's like we become who we were meant to be. Our attempt to walk in good works without grace is like trying to climb up a glassy mountain. And our feet just getting torn to shreds. We can't walk in good works without grace. Grace makes it possible. Grace makes the newness of life, the new man, exist. We can't do it without grace. We'll destroy ourselves. We won't make it to the mountain. We'll be tired out before we even start. Paul was preaching this radical message of grace, even to Gentiles. And it got him in a lot of trouble. So they seized him, they tried to kill him. Paul says in verse 22, though, To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. It's only by God's help that he's standing before King Agrippa and Festus today, surviving all the other trials and all the other uh, um, testimonies that he's been in, the beatings and other uh, nations and places he was visiting. Paul is proclaiming the same message to small people and to big people, to kings and to Gentiles. What is this help that comes from God that has allowed him to get this far? Interestingly, um, Chris will be able to tell us more about this after he takes Greek, uh, but this is the only time this Greek word for help is used in the entire New Testament. Anytime you see the word help anywhere else in the New Testament, it's a different word. Um, this one word... Uh, and, and the other words for help mean kind of the traditional sense, what you would think of, you know, I think of like a, uh, EMS, you know, you're, you're, you're in need and somebody comes to your aid to rescue, to give assistance when you are needing help, you're, you're needy. Uh, but this version of the word help is unique in that it doesn't just mean to come to someone's aid as a rescuer, but to come as an ally. 
to come as a friend, to come on the same team. Not pulling in outside help, but pulling in backup. People that are already yours and are working for your good. Paul is essentially saying here that the Lord is on his side. Just a few chapters ago, remember that night in the barracks, the Lord, Jesus, stood beside him. Stood beside him, telling him to take courage. This is the help that comes from God. Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. Here's further evidence of the credible power of God. He shows up in the lives of weak people, displaying his power and strength in undeniable ways. There's no reason Paul should still be alive, except that God was on his side. And the same goes for us. Do you know that God is on your side? Do you believe Romans 8? That was the closest I've ever gotten to changing my sermon. Hearing Stephen read Romans 8, right? What does Romans 8 say? What shall you say? What shall we say then? Who is to bring any charge against God's elect? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who is there to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. I believe if we truly grasp the help available to us in the strong name of Jesus, our perfect Savior, strong defender, we would live far more fearlessly. The Lord loves to defend and fight for the weak. He loves to defend and fight for us. He is on our side. Do you remember that time the disciples were on a boat and they saw Jesus Walking on water. And they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost, right? The wind was raging and the water was beating against, the waves were beating against the boat. And he comes a little closer and they're still not sure, right? And so they say, come here. And they say, if you are Jesus, Peter says, let me walk out there with you. What happens, right? Peter gets out of the boat and walks on the sea, walks on the water with Jesus. And then what happens? He becomes afraid because of the wind and the waves beating against the boat, and he begins to sink. And Jesus says, I told you not to take your eyes off me. What were you thinking? I'm going to let you waller a little bit so that you know not to do that again. I'm going to make you feel bad about yourself. I'm going to make you feel guilty for taking your eyes off of me. And then when you're good and ready and beat up and sore and tired and you got nothing left, then I'll come and help. When you're at the bottom of the ocean, then I'll come and get you. What's Jesus do? Immediately reaches out his hand without a thought. Peter says, save me, Lord. And he reaches out his hand and pulls him up. This is what it looks like to have a Savior who is with us. Anytime you've ever cried out for help. Save me. He hears and he listens and he performs credible works that testify not only to his resurrection, but that he is with you. He helps. King Agrippa <clears throat> saw Paul's perseverance. He was weak and in prison for years. He was hated by all these people. 
God had delivered him this far. <clears throat> and Paul was just preaching what the prophets preached. Um, which was, in verse 23, this is what the prophets and Moses had said. The Christ must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The prophets were preaching the gospel long before Paul ever got on the scene. Go back and read chapter 13. Paul basically preaches the entire Old Testament <laughs> and points it to, to Jesus, right? Go back and read that uh, later when he was in Antioch. Um, the Christ must suffer, and he would be the firstborn from the dead, and he would bring light to the nations that we would also be made alive as he was made alive. And Paul lays all his cards out on the table. He preached the gospel clearly to the great king Agrippa. He has appropriately defended himself. He's proven the credibility of his claim that Jesus is alive. How do they respond? The final point. Persuading all men. <clears throat> Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. <laughs> you are, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But, <clears throat> Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, in some translations, you might read a little bit different there in, uh, in such an easy time. Short, easy, it's hard to uh, interpret there. Both are fine. In a short time, an easy, would you so easily persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, whether easy or hard, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. So what do they say? First they say, Paul, you need to go in the loony bin. You are off your rocker. You're crazy. You're crazy. You are out of your mind for saying the things that you're saying. And Festus says it's not just that he's talking crazy, but he's talking so highly, so loftily with his language, his religious language, his learned speech. He, you know, Festus is like, not just are you crazy, you're too big for your britches. You're studying things that are just too beyond yourself. Here, you need to take a back seat and let the religious authorities handle it. Um, he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about sin and repentance. He's talking about justification. And then Paul says in verse 25, I'm not out of my mind. I'm speaking true and rational words. Festus was not as fluent in religious terminology. Agrippa was more so fluent in these kinds of uh, doctrines. And so verse 26, Paul says to Agrippa, I know you know what I'm talking about. I know you've read the prophets. I know you've heard about this stuff, Agrippa. Haven't you? Haven't you read them? What do you think? Do you believe? <clears throat> and uh, he says, I noticed you hadn't, you hadn't fell asleep on me yet. You, you, you've been paying attention this whole time. You, you've not turned your eyes away from everything that I've said. And then in verse 27, uh, Agrippa says, or verse 28, Agrippa says, would you persuade me in such a short time? And this is really a, an interesting exchange between Paul and Agrippa. Paul is speaking like a master evangelist. Agrippa seems genuinely intrigued by 
what's going on here, and he's entertaining himself with these doctrines. Paul was convincing, but the king says, would you persuade me in such a short time, uh, or so easily? And you got to love Paul's response here. He's just not beating around the bush at all. He says, if it's long or short, if it's easy or hard, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I would love to persuade you to be a Christian. Not only you, but Festus and everybody within earshot of me saying these words. I would love for you to repent and believe in Jesus as Lord. And the passage ends in disappointment. We don't know if Agrippa would repent. Historically, we don't see any evidence of that. But he does profess Paul's innocence. He says, after they left the court, uh, he says, if this guy hadn't appealed to Caesar, you know, we could have let him go free. Now we got to go through this whole thing with Caesar. They still don't know what to do. They don't know what to write to the emperor because this was why they did the thing, to try to find something worthy of a charge that they could send to Caesar before they send Paul his way. And they've got nothing. They said this guy's innocent and they don't know what they're going to do. But of course, this uh, piece of scripture is not about Agrippa's response. This is about Paul's obedience to the heavenly vision. And part of that obedience to Jesus was his commission to be a witness to the things concerning him. Paul has been faithful, standing before the small and the great, even to King Agrippa. And the fact that King Agrippa even considers Christianity, even for a short moment, shows us the credible power of God to persuade all kinds of people. Little people, big people. He saves all kinds. He persuades all kinds. How does God persuade men by his power? With his word. Have you not read the prophets? You know what the prophets say, right, King? The prophets and Moses, they, they said that this would happen. It starts with the word. The word does the work. The word persuades people to believe in the credible power of the resurrection. And he said these things before rulers, not just as a legitimate defense, but as a means to persuade the small and the great. And Paul's motive for sharing his testimony in this last four chapters has not just been about proving his innocence. It's been about sharing the best news in all the universe with anybody that would listen to him. The small and the great. He wants the king to become a Christian. He wanted Festus and Felix and Lysias and Tertullus and Ananias and all the others that he testified in front of to become Christians. But to win them, the word will have to do the work. It is not incredible that God raises the dead because God speaks by his own words and miracles happen when God speaks. But we should be aware the true and rational words may cause others who disagree with those words to call us crazy or to think that we're maniacs or to think we're out of our minds if we truly believe these words. If we submit to them, believe them, preach them, we might sound a little crazy sometimes. We're a church with a mission to teach the truth. It's literally in our mission statement. We should expect some fingers pointed at us if we're going to teach the truth appropriately. Um, uh, it wasn't so pleasant at the time, you know, but I think I've earned my badge to have been accused of starting a cult here at Main Street, uh, as many a pastor has in their day. But the thing is, this was accused by good church-going people, not by kings, not by governors, not by secular rulers. 
So what do you do when the opposition to the credibility of God's word comes from the people who claim God for themselves? And this is what the Jews were, right? And this is what much of what we see in Christianity today and evangelicalism. What if it's not just by good church-going people, but what if it's your siblings? What if it's your spouse doesn't believe the words that you believe? What if it's your children? What if it's your church members? That is a lot harder to deal with. But Paul did not bat an eye. He went in even heavier with the word targeting Agrippa. It takes a bold kind of guy to be called crazy by our governor and then immediately try to convince the king to be a Christian. People who believe that God saves both the great and small do that kind of stuff. Do you believe in the credible power of God to save anyone? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. The word does the work. Another way to ask this, which has been said before, if God saved every person that you prayed for salvation for this last week, how many people would be saved? Or the last month? Or the last year? We typically don't pray for things that we think God is incapable of doing. Subconsciously, if we don't pray for the Lord to save sinners, perhaps we don't believe He can. God could never save that person. God could never save that king. God could never save that homeless guy. God could never save my mean-spirited boss. God could never save my parents, my spouse. God could never save them. But God saved us, right? He saves the small. He saves the big. God's word is persuasive all on its own. It speaks for itself. All we are asked to do is to declare it. We must be prepared to share it quickly. We must be prepared to share it over a long period of time, whether it's easy or it's hard. We share it and we leave the results up to God. So let's give it a shot. Verse 23 says that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The good news is that God came to earth in the man, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, as the prophets testified, as the, the coming Messiah who would take away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God, who would be the final once and for all sacrifice. There's only one way to be resurrected. Paul says this in Ephesians. You've got to descend, right? He had to die. The, all the prophets prophesied not of a great victorious king, although there's images of that. There's a suffering servant king who would bear our transgressions on himself. He would be a man acquainted with sorrows and grief. He bore our sin on the cross. God himself died our death. Never sinning. Never sinning once. But living fully in a, a body just like ours. He rose from the dead three days later. Uh, went Resurrected on high. Ascended on high. To the right hand of the Father. As a final once and for all sacrifice meaning the work has been done and anybody who believes in him is justified and is as good as sanctified and it's not just that he did this stuff and we believe in him but he changes us he makes our hearts new he transforms us into new people he converts us he softens our hearts he makes us change so that we can walk as we've never walked before. 
Have you believed in the Savior? Be persuaded not by this preacher. Be persuaded not even by this whole group of people who believe in it. But hear God's word for yourself. And believe in the good news today. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you suffered and died and were the first to rise that we too might rise from the dead. Thank you for a cool social hall to meet in. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of grace. I pray it never gets old. I pray we celebrate it well. Thank you for blessed assurance. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.